Well, good evening, everybody. Thanks for coming to our Bible study, Life's Big Questions, God's Big Answers. My name is Brad Alice. I'm Assistant Professor of Education at Concordia University, Wisconsin. I've been teaching for 31 years, and as I've had a chance to teach in Texas and Wisconsin and uh, speak all over the country in over 20 states, I found kids and adults all have questions. We all have questions about things. Is the Bible true? Did Jesus really exist? What about creation and evolution? Was there a global flood? How do dinosaurs fit into the whole thing, right? Are there demons? Are there angels? Where does evil come from? So those questions are ones we're going to address during our six-week study. And so if you want to read the book, Life's Big Questions, God's Big Answers, you can get those answers and more. If you don't want to read the book, that's fine. If you come every week, we're going to address these issues and talk about things. If you have more questions, please contact me contact me. You can see my email address at the top of the sheet as well as on the screen there, brad.alice at cuw.edu. I'd love to answer your questions if you have them. If you have them, you can also go to my website, bradalice.com. The website is designed to help people defend their faith and explain their Christian worldview. So if you have questions, you can contact me through that vehicle as well. I have a tendency to speak very quickly, and so I'm just going to warn you right now. The information is going to come at you fast and furiously. We're going to be done, though, at 6.15, and then the youth can go to their small group. Uh, the, the adults and the rest of us can, can uh, stay and ask questions, and if not, we can head out, shovel some more snow. <laughs> I, I, I think it's a great idea. All right. Who's with me? No one? Okay, no one. All right, one. All right, thank you. Thank you. All right. So with that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the freedom in this country to gather like this and to gather around your word. Lord, we pray that you'd bind Satan and make this holy ground. We pray, Lord, that you'd give us new insight by the Spirit, that we'd understand what your word says, how it's true and reliable. And Lord, I pray that we'd be confident in that and that we'd continue to open our mouths and share the truth, that people would know you as Lord and Savior. Lord, we pray a blessing on this time. We give you all the praise and glory, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've got the outline there. Everything that's on the screen is on the outline. There's nothing new to be written down unless you want to jot yourself some notes so you can go ahead and do that. One of the things that you've got to know, and it's not on your sheet, and I threw a bunch of numbers at you for a reason, is that the times, they are changing. Now, that's a bad imitation of... Dylan, all right, so, so the adults in the room know the, 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 uh, the musical artist Bob Dylan that I was imitating, right? For some of you who are younger, you might not know, all right? But the times are changing. The Barna Group is a group that polls and surveys Americans regarding spirituality and religion. If you take a look on the screen, there's been a marked decline in those who adhere to Christianity as well as those who are in the none category, all right? So let's start on the left, the baby boomers or boomers, and then you've got Generation X or Gen X. I missed the baby boom by one year. I was born in 1965. I missed the cutoff, so I'm a, technically a Gen Xer, all right? Millennials and then Generation Z. Generation Z or Gen Z is defined by Barna and Gallup and the Pew Forum Group as... Uh, people who were born between 1999 and 2015. So that's the latest population, Generation Z or Gen Z. If you take a look at the far left, Christian, and I'll go across, all right, notice the percentage of Christians is dropping. If you would listen to the Pew Forum group, if you'd listen to Gallup, 
When they polled Americans in 1972 and asked them, how many of you subscribe to Christianity as your religious belief? 88% of Americans in 1972 said, I'm a Christian. 88% of Americans in 1972 said, I'm a Christian. Now, as a whole, that's down to 70%. So Christianity has dropped in about 40 years from 88% to 70%. Now, 70% is still a, a wide majority. If you look at the polling from the 1970s all the way to now, to the other religions in the United States, all of those others are still flatlined, about 1%, 2%. When it comes to Judaism or the Jewish faith, Islam, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, etc. So one, two, max percent, less than a percent. Those are pretty much flatlined in, in the last 40 years, right? What has grown substantially is a group called the nuns. And I've boxed them in on the screen there. The nuns, N-O-N-E-S. So we're not talking about Catholic nuns, all right? <laughs> N-O-N-E-S. The nuns are a group that the Pew Research Group and, and Barna and, and Gallup call the, the conglomerate of atheists. There is no God. Agnostic. I don't know if there's a God. Maybe there is. Maybe there isn't. How can we know? And no religious affiliation whatsoever. If you would go look at the polling from Pew and Gallup from the 1970s, again, go back to 1972, only 7% of Americans define themselves as none. 88% are Christian, all right? Same polling going on 40 years later. Now you've got 23% of Americans as a whole who identify as none. Atheist, agnostic, no religious affiliation. That group has grown dramatically in the last 40 years. Where Christianity has declined, the nuns have grown. Again, the other religions are pretty much flatlined. On the screen are the specifics in 2018 by Barna when you look at Generation Z, Millennials, Generation X, and Baby Boomers. So you can see Christians among the Baby Boomers, 75%, then it drops down to 65% and 65%, and then Gen Z, 59%. Again, other religions, if you go across the board, they're 5, 5, 5, 7%. There's not this great growth in Buddhism or Hinduism or whatever. But notice the nuns, as a whole, looking at atheist, agnostic, no religious affiliation under the boomer column, that's 20%. 4%, 5%, 11%, 20% of boomers identify as nuns. Now you look at Generation X, it's 30%. Millennials, 30%. Look at Gen Z. 35% identify, if you add up 8 and 13 and 14%, 35% identify as none. No religious affiliation, atheist or agnostic. Why do I tell you this to start off our study, Life's Big Questions, God's Big Answers? There is a growth in the United States in skepticism. There's a growth in I don't believe, I just don't believe, all right? And so your mission as a member of the body of Christ is to interact, engage, as Pastor has said. Engage with people. Because if you listen to people who are studying Generation Z, and now we're just focusing on those, and Barno is polling people 13 to 18 years old, right? So 13 to 18 years old uh, is the, the age population in Gen Z that was filling out the survey here. 
you're seeing an increase in belief in atheism. Notice, for atheists among Gen Z, far right side, 13%, double what some of these other generations are. You're seeing much more atheism subscribed by the younger generation. And so there's great skepticism to the Bible, to God's existence, to the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. And so people who study Generation Z will even say this, they're not even thinking about religion. They're not even thinking about it. So one of the best things you can do is bring up topics, bring up things. And the one we're going to focus on tonight is the reliability of the Bible. So if you take a look on the board, we're going to have three objectives here. By the end of tonight, you should be able to do three things. You should be able to talk to people and talk about a bibliographical test. Do you know why the Bible's reliable? You can do a bibliographical test on it. You know why the Bible's reliable? Number two, there's an internal evidence test you can give to it. Do you know why the Bible's reliable? You can give it an external evidence test. So here's three things you should be able to do when you walk out tonight. Now, you've got the outline that you can always rely on and check out. You can email me, you can call me, you can go through the website, my website, and contact me if you need more. I can give you other resources besides my book. There's tons of resources out there, but you and I need to understand there is a growth in skepticism to things of God, and you have an opportunity to literally save a life by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the end, you're not going to save anybody. Only God, the Holy Spirit, is going to take a person who's spiritually dead, Ephesians 2, and bring him to life. We were dead in our transgressions and sins, and God made us alive, Ephesians 2. And so when you understand, look, you're not going to save anybody, but you're going to be a vehicle that God, the Holy Spirit, is going to use in an increasingly skeptical culture. And one of the biggest questions is, <laughs> is the Bible even reliable? So let's take a look at that. First off, let's just understand, we use terms that people outside the Christian church do not understand. It's vocabulary like inspiration, inerrancy, etc., etc. What you're also finding among Generation Z and those in the millennials, there are references that you'll make that they won't even understand. Adam and Eve, David and Goliath, Doubting Thomas. What are you talking about? It's like you're speaking a different language. So assume nothing anymore. Assume nothing anymore. You need to spoon-feed spoon feed everyone, all right? Make sure that they understand you know what inspiration means. Now, if you don't, here's what it means. If you take a look at those first three points under inspiration, it's God breathing into men, so what is expressed is what the Holy Spirit wants, all right? That's, a, that's a, a, an easy-to-understand definition of what's inspiration. Inspiration of Scripture is God breathing into men, so what they write is what He wants, all right? Literally, the word inspiration in Greek means God breathed. You can see on the picture on the screen, God, ah, they're breathing into Adam in that, in that picture. There's a line going from God's mouth to Adam. That's kind of cool. So is inspiration God going, ah, ah, well, no, all right? But if you read 2 Timothy, it says all Scripture is God breathed. It's inspired and is useful for teaching, rebuking correcting and training in righteousness. Now, Paul, when he's writing to Timothy, he's saying, hey, all Scripture, he's referring to the Old Testament. It's inspired. Now, we also believe that the New Testament is inspired as well, and we'll talk about that as we go. But it's God breathing into men. So he's not just exhaling, all right? He's breathing into men. So what they write is his message. Paul, or Peter, when he writes his second epistle, he says this, for prophecy never had its origin in the, in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
Nobody sat around and said, you know what, I'm going to write the Bible today. I'm going to come up with a snappy beginning. <laughs> there it is, in the beginning. <laughs> oh, this is great. <laughs> no one did that, all right? Prophecy never had its origin in the will of men, but men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what they communicated was the truths of the Spirit in the Spirit's words. When you read Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he says it like this. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. Take a look on on the board here. Here's what some people believe when it comes to the Bible. They don't believe it's the inspired Word of God. They believe it's a product of men. And that's understandable, all right? Really, God moved through writers to produce a book? Really? Yeah, that's what we believe. Isn't it like this? So here's a stick figure, and he's at a table, and he's going to write, and he's got a word, or a thought balloon coming out. Wouldn't that be cool if you lived your life and there was thought balloons? Well, maybe not. <laughs> this is boring. And I'd see that, and you'd go, uh, all right. But wouldn't it be cool if you spoke, and they, like in the comics, there'd be a little pointer, and then there'd be a balloon? Hey, how are you? And then they'd just dissipate. Wouldn't that be cool? Am I the only one? Is this mic on? Okay, anyway. So here's what some people believe. Well, that's what inspiration is. It's just God or people just writing their own, their own thoughts. No, it's not, all right? I'm going to use a dove shape for the Holy Spirit. Now, I know it looks like a flattened out M. I'm sorry, all right? But it's a dove shape. It's a bird shape because God, the Holy Spirit, you see on the screen, is pictured as a dove. Why? At the baptism, remember, God, the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove, all right? If you doubt about the Trinity, just take people to that section at the baptism. Jesus is standing there. God the, Holy, or God the Father says, this is my son whom I love, and the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove. It's pretty cool. They're all there. So what happens? This guy has got his own vocabulary. This guy has got his own experiences. And this guy has got his own feelings. Feelings. Nothing more than feelings. Try. Yeah, some of the older people understand the song, and some of the younger ones don't, okay? I'm going to make a CD next. I think you're going to enjoy it. That'll be cut number one, all right? So he's got his vocabulary, he's got his experiences, he's got his feelings, all right? Is that what the Bible is? It's just a product of men? No. The Holy Spirit moves through this guy's thoughts, feelings, vocabulary, and writes what he wants, all right? And so sometimes I'll draw it like that. Now, if you've got a, a pencil in the, in the uh, pew there, if you've got a, a pen or you've got a crayon, all right, uh, you, you could draw that little picture. Right? It's not copyrighted. Go ahead. And if that will help you, great. Or if it will help, hint, hint, you talking to someone, hint, hint, who has questions about inspiration of Scripture, go ahead and use that, all right? Because it's not dictation. If you were taking dictation, you're going to copy down everything someone says. And everyone's going to have the exact same thing. It's going to be the same style, if you will. Now, when you read the Bible, you've got different styles. David writes in a totally different style than Moses, than a totally different style than Peter, than a totally different style than John. All right? Why? Because their vocabulary, experiences, feelings are all different. And God takes stuff in these different people's minds and, and uses those to communicate his truth, but when he's working through a different writer, they've got their own vocabulary and experiences and feelings, and he's using that. And that's why they don't all sound the same, all right? Please understand also, they're not in a kind of a trance-like state. 
They're not zombies, right? Ah, Bible good. (laughs) No, it's not what's happening, right? They're conscious, they're awake. When you read 2 Thessalonians, we're not going to go there now. Paul says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand, right? So he's awake, he's alert, he's not in a trance, he's not in some kind of a a zombified state, all right? Now, if you would copy down a section of Scripture, if you would translate something from Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek, or, or if you would speak a sermon, or if you'd share something with someone online or in person, is that verbal inspiration of Scripture? No. All you're doing is taking the inspired Word of God and sharing it with someone, all right? And so if you ask people what they believe about the Bible, here's what polling groups like Gallup and Barna have found, all right? Only one-third of Americans believe this is the inspired, inerrant Word of God. We got our work cut out for us. Only one-third of Americans believe this is the inspired, inerrant Word of God. Most people think it's just a product of man, all right? So what do you got to do? Again, you got to explain stuff, right? Well, show me an original copy of Genesis. Show me an original copy of Revelation. We don't have any. <gasps> Why not? Because what they wrote on didn't last, all right? What they wrote on just didn't survive. So you can see what they wrote on. Papyrus, which is split reeds laid at right angles and written on with ink, all right? They also wrote, whoops, they also wrote on animal skins, technical term vellum or parchment. They'd also write or chisel on stone tablets or with a metal-pointed pen called a stylus, press into wax and clay tablets that are soft and then they'd harden. But think about those things that you write on. You could break your Bible, you could chip your Bible, you could have your Bible just fall apart because it's made out of animal or plant material. So they had to make copies. And normally people seize on that and they'll say, so we don't have any originals. No, we don't have any originals. Well, then how do we know the Bible we've got is what was originally said? That's a good question. Sometimes people will bring this up. We can't play telephone without messing the message up. How many of you have played telephone before? Isn't that great? All right, I'm going to start one message right here, and it's going to go. I'm, okay, maybe we won't do that. We're running out of time. All right, so I won't do that, right? But the whole idea in telephone is you want to communicate the message. That's an apples and oranges comparison. Please help people understand. That's not a good comparison to how we got our Bible. It's not telephone, all right? So we've got to give our first test, and it's a bibliographical test. Biblios in Greek is book. Grapho is right. The writing of the book test. We're going to give a writing of the book test to the Old Testament, and then we're going to do it to the New Testament. So the first test you want to be able to explain to people is, look, let's do a writing of the book test. We don't have originals, but let's look at the oldest manuscripts we've got. Is what they're saying the same as what our Bible in 2019 is saying? And the answer is yes. (laughs) That's good news, right? The Septuagint is the oldest version of the Old Testament on the planet. It dates to about 300 B.C. If you could read the Greek, (laughs) it's Greek to me. I'll I'll be here just for a little while. It'll be over soon. Don't worry, all right? If you could read the Greek, all right, and you could read your English Old Testament, it's saying the same thing. Now, how about the Hebrew? The Dead Sea Scrolls are the oldest manuscript on the planet from in a Hebrew form, date to about 100 B.C., again, ballpark figure. We have a professor at Concordia who translated off the Dead Sea Scrolls of Numbers. He said, if you can read English and you could read that number scroll, the oldest number scroll on the planet, he says it's saying the same thing. How cool is that? He says they keep it under pressurized glass. There's guards there when he's working on the translation. So nobody can just go, I'll take that. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) Walking away with history. So he said you could read the Hebrew 
the oldest on the, on the planet, and then read your Bible, it's saying the same thing. Now, the Isaiah scroll of the Dead Sea Scrolls is 95% the exact same thing as what your English Bible says in front of you. Well, what's the 5% different? The 5% difference is slips of the pen and misspelling of words. What do you mean mis, uh, slips of the pen? You'll notice on the board here my writing. I'll be honest, it's not the neatest thing in the world. My wife and two girls have learned to speak Brad very well, all right? They could read that. But after a while, sometimes you write stuff and you kind of mash letters together, you morph what the shape should be. It's not like in grade school. Remember those long sheets of paper with the lines and then the dotted line and then you had to shape the letters? Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah! I don't do that. I just write and whatever comes up, bleh. So here's the deal. What do you mean? Slips of the pen. Someone with bad penmanship. What do you mean misspelling of words? They spelled a word wrong. But that doesn't change the meaning of the Scripture. And that's why those 5% difference, it's not earth-shattering. It's not earth-shattering at all. And we'll talk about that stuff later. If you look back, for hundreds of years, there were Jewish scholars who took painstaking steps to copy this accurately. The Talmudists, the Masoretes, followed incredible rules to make sure that they were copying Scripture accurately because they knew what they had was not going to last. It was written on material that was going to break down. So if you look at some of the rules they had for copying Scripture, it was like this. If you're going to copy Scripture, you must bathe and put on clean clothes. It makes sense. You don't get all hot and sweaty. Hey, man, let's copy Scripture. Uh, and you're sweating all over the text, all right? Next, you've got to focus on what you're doing. And if the king should come in, you ignore him. Think about that. God's word takes precedence over the temporal authority. And if you make a mistake, you got to destroy that and start all over. Oof. Can you imagine? Copying Psalms. <laughs> That's Psalm 150. Man, when this is done, I'm going to get a burrito. Oh! <laughs> ah! <laughs> So the whole concept of, well, we really can't trust it. It's not reliable. Well, let's do a bibliographical test. Let's do a writing of the book test. Let's go back to the oldest manuscripts we've got. It's saying essentially the same thing. There's a slight variation in manuscripts. We'll talk about that, like the Isaiah scroll, 5%, nothing major, right? Same thing with the New Testament. You can do a bibliographical test, a writing of the book test with the New Testament, and what you're going to find is this. It is so reliable, it blows other ancient documents out of the water. If I say the book, the Iliad, how many of you know what I'm talking about? Cool, all right? Now, if you don't, it's the story of the Trojan War and the Trojan horse and Achilles and Agamemnon, right? That is the smell of victory. And so when you, when you understand that story, all right, you, you, you maybe read Homer's The Iliad, all right? Take a look in that rectangle box on the text there or on the, on the outline. If you compare the New Testament to the Iliad by Homer, that's the next best ancient document on the planet as far as copies and close time to the original writing and, and few lines and questions. The New Testament Greek is so much more reliable and has more copies than any other thing. It blows it away. So take a look in that little rectangle there. 
There's over 24,000 copies of the New Testament. Now, 5,686 are total Greek manuscripts. 19,000 plus are in other languages. The next best book on the planet from ancient times is Homer's The Iliad, the Trojan War, Achilles, Agamemnon, and all those guys, right? You might go, so what? So, so there's 24,000 more copies. What do I care? Here's why you should care. If you could go to museums and libraries and look at them all and read them, those New Testament books are saying the same thing as your, your English Bible sitting in front of you. There's a bibliographical test that's been copied accurately. You have many more copies to check and see, man, is it all messed up? No, it's not. Next, it's copied closer in time to the original than any other ancient document. Again, the Iliad being in second place. Notice, it's about 250 to 300 years from the, the ending of the, the book of Revelation when, it, when that was completed. Revelation's written around 100, 100 A.D., ballpark figure. You've got a full copy of the 27 books dating about 250 to 300 years later, right? So if, so if John finishes Revelation here, you've got a full copy of the New Testament about 250 to 300 years later. Now for us, 250 to 300 years, that's a long time. If you would look at some of these other ancient books that no one has any questions on its reliability, they date 800 years, 1,000 years later, Nobody has any questions, but suddenly the Bible's held to a different standard. Well, I don't know if we can trust it. It's copied closer in time to the original than any other book. Now you might go, what do we care? The more time that goes by, the more copies you have to make, and the more potential for mistakes. So if this is copied close in time, only 250 to 300 years, there's less potential for mistake because you had to make fewer copies. Look at the Iliad. It's 500 years removed from its original writing. It's double the amount of the New Testament books. But nobody questions Homer's the Iliad. But they'll look at the New Testament and go, well, I don't know if we can rely on those documents. Why? Maybe you have a prejudice, maybe you have a bias, maybe you have an ax to grind. Finally, there's fewer lines in doubt than any other ancient manuscript. So if you count all the lines in the New Testament, there's about 20,000 lines, right? About 40 of them are ones that would be unclear, where the Greek scholar goes, well, we could translate it like this, or we could translate it like that. Now, here's what your Bible editors do. If you look in your print Bible, at the bottom of the page, they will always give you a footnote, and it'll say, or you could say it like this, or you could say it like that. So they tell you. They're not trying to hide anything from you, not trying to pull the wool over your eyes. But there's only 40 lines that are questionable, like, well, what is the Greek here? It's very clear. Look at the Iliad. There's 764 lines where the Greek scholar goes, ah, we're not quite sure what Homer's saying here. He could be saying this or he could be saying that. So it's a very clear book, cl copied closer in time to the original with thousands and thousands of copies that you can double-check against each other. Are they all saying the same thing? And the answer is yes, that's good news. So it's a bibliographical test, the running of the book test. You could also look at the different versions that it's written in. It's been uh, copied in Latin. It's been copied in Coptic, it, it, other versions. That's rare for ancient documents. Now again, you might go, so what? Well, here's what you can do. Look at your English version. Look at the Greek version. Look at the Egyptian Coptic version, the Latin version. Are they saying the same thing? Yes, that's a good sign, all right? There's a consistency there. And what's fascinating is this. Our early church fathers, 
from around 200-300 A.D., they'd quote Scripture in their letters, in their sermons, in their books. Remember what John said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. When you read their quotes and then look at what your Bible says, it's saying the same thing. So when you look at all of their writings, you could actually destroy every Bible on the planet and reconstruct the New Testament, all but 11 verses, if you go back and read what some of these early church fathers were were saying in their sermons, in their books, in their letters. You check what they said with what your Bible says, and it's uh, fit in the bill of a reliable book, right? But now let's talk about inerrancy. Inerrancy. We believe the Bible is inerrant. What does that mean? It's without error, without contradiction. To do this test, you have to do our second one, the internal evidence test. In other words, you got to read it cover to cover. By a show of hands, how many of you have read the Bible cover to cover? All 66 books. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now, if you've not done that, I can give you a Bible reading program. I give you a sheet of paper that says, here's what you can do. You can read the Bible through in a year. Take it two, three chapters a day. If you want to take a longer time than that, do it over two years, three years, you can do that. Again, maybe just reading a chapter or two. But bottom line, read it. God's speaking to you. God is speaking to you. Here's the question. Is anyone listening? Is anyone in the Christian church listening? Now, I've read the Bible cover to cover three times. Now I'm outlining it. I got about a third of the books done, all right? So before I die, I got to get them all done, all right? So I got work to do. But I've outlined 22 books. You can do this. You can read it cover to cover and do an internal evidence test. Do you find contradictions? You will not. You will not. Now, there's books on this if you're interested in it. it. Does the Bible contradict itself? Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties. If you're interested in those volumes, you can check those out. But read it cover to cover. It's not going to have contradictions. If you find a passage that says, Satan is God, hail Satan, now you got a problem, all right? But you're not going to find that, all right? You're not going to find that, all right? And please come back in two weeks, all right? We're not going to have any more of that stuff, okay? But if you read it cover to cover, you're not going to find the contradictions. Why? If God the Holy Spirit is moving these writers to write, he's not going to contradict himself. He's sinless. He's perfect. You read it cover to cover, you're not going to find problems, all right? Even Scripture talks about this is God's Word and it's perfect. I just gave you two examples from Psalm 119. All your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. Jesus says it like this in his high priestly prayer, John 17, 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Now, people will point out, you can't use the Bible to prove itself. That's circular reasoning. True. But we use circular reasoning all the time. We quote ourselves as authority. Well, that's just what I think. We always have a source of authority, right? But if people don't want to listen to this, where the Bible is saying, Look, listen to this, this is true, fine. You can still do things like this. Read it cover to cover. Do you find contradictions? No, you will not find contradictions. Here's what you will find, variations in the manuscript. Remember when I was telling you about the Dead Sea Scrolls? 5% different than what your Bible says. What are those 5% differences? Misspelling of words, slip of the pen, nothing major, nothing earth-shattering. Your Bible editor always lets you know if there's a variation in the manuscript, right? If you go to Acts 10, if you go to Acts 10 in your Bible, you can grab a pew Bible right now. If you've got your smartphone, you can get on the phone, your, your Bible app, you can do that. I don't know if the Bible apps are going to have this, all right? I'm just going to tell you right now. 
I'm a dinosaur. I'm not really into smartphones and apps and everything, all right? I, I like to hold a book in my hand, to hold a magazine in my hand. But bottom line is, if you don't have uh, the, the footnote on, on the Bible app, in a print Bible, you should be able to see these things. You're going to Acts 10. Let me just give you an example of this, all right? And uh, you've got um, Acts 10, 19. Uh, the, the plot line is Peter had a vision, and now God is telling him to go and talk with these Gentiles and share the good news of Jesus Christ as Savior. Acts 10 and 19 says, And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. All right? Now, in my Bible, there's a footnote next to three. In the Greek, this is what the manuscripts will say. Peter, three men are looking for you. Most of them say that. There's some manuscripts that say two men are looking for you. There's one manuscript that doesn't have a number. So it just says, men are looking for you. That's a variation in the manuscript. And a Bible editor will put that in the text. So when you're reading it, you can see the footnote, and it'll say, some manuscripts say there's two men. One has, there's no number. But bottom line is, most say three. So that must be a copyist error. It must be as painstaking as those people were trying to be. They made a human error. It doesn't change the story. Were men looking for Peter? Yes. If it was 27 men, it doesn't change anything. There was men who were looking for Peter. They wanted to know about Jesus of Nazareth, and then he goes and, and preaches with them. If you'd read your Bible, and you can do this. If your Bible's got those footnotes, it'll say, some manuscripts say, and then it'll give you the specific. If you went page to page through your whole Bible and looked at all the variations in the manuscripts, you'd find that there's nothing contradictory. There's nothing, a change in our doctrine. Hey, there's four members of the Trinity. Huh, go figure. I didn't know that. You're not going to find anything like that. You could actually, though, look at every verse in the Bible, and 98.33% of them, there's no variation in the manuscript. That's astounding. 1.67% of the verses, in other words, have a footnote that say, some manuscripts say, well, they don't say, but you know what I mean. So it might have a spelling change, a word change, nothing dramatic, okay? So that's good news. There's no contradiction, there's no error, all right? Third test is the external evidence test. So the external evidence test, and we're going we're to talk more about this as we go through Life's Big Questions, God's Big Answers is, is there outside evidence, external evidence, that supports what the Bible says? And the answer is yes. Have we found everything? No. But everything we have found supports what Scripture says. So there's historical confirmation. There's archaeological confirmation. Example, if you go to ancient records, who's the most noted figure in antiquity? Who's the most famous person cited across these different countries in the world? Alexander the Great is number one. How many of you have heard of Alexander the Great? There you go. All right, so he's a pretty popular guy, right? Conquers the known world by the age of 33, weeps because there's no more worlds to conquer, right? Who's in second place? If you go to ancient documents and look for famous people referenced again and again and again, King Solomon is second. 
His wisdom, his wealth is very well known. And so he's not a fairy tale figure. He's not uh, Jack from Jack and the Beanstalk. He's not Peter Parker, the amazing Spider-Man, as much as I love Spidey, all right? He's not a fictional character. He was a real person. There's evidence on the planet that talks about him. And same thing with Jesus Christ. And so we're going to talk about Jesus. Is there evidence for Jesus? Yes. Outside the Bible? Yes. That's good news, all right? So on the screen is Josephus. He's a Jewish historian. He's not a Christian. He talks about Jesus dying by crucifixion and rising from the dead. Huh. On the screen, on the right, is a picture of Jericho, where the walls collapsed, right? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came a-tumbling. Isn't that a toe-tapper? It's going to be the second cut on that CD. You're going to love it. Bottom line is, do you find Jericho on the planet? Yes. Did the walls collapse out? Yes. That's what James Garstang found in the 1930s when he dug at Jericho. So when I taught for 31 years, 28 in two high schools in Texas and Wisconsin, and now three at Concordia University, Wisconsin, the way I say it is this. What I read in God's Word is what I see in God's world. What I read in God's Word is what I see in God's world. That's an external evidence test. So when people are trying to say, well, I really don't trust the Bible. I don't think it's reliable. Here's three things you can bring up. Bibliographical test. Well, look at, look at the ancient documents. It's saying the exact same, or almost exact same thing. Look at an internal evidence test. Read it cover to cover. It's not contradictory. Look at an external evidence test. There's evidence to support it. It's not a fairy tale. It matches reality. It's a reliable book. And Bible means book. So at the bottom of the sheet, and then we're going to go over to the backside real quick. We have the 66 canonical books, or the canon of Scripture. Now again, there's a, there's a Christian vocabulary term. What, what do you mean the canon? The canon are the accepted list of books with authority, because they're inspired from God. If you flip the sheet over, go to the back side. There are some people who believe, well, there was a group of people in 90 A.D. who picked the books of the Bible. It's called the Council of Jamnia. no. They did not. If you look at the records from the Council of Jamnia in 90 AD, they talked about the canonical books, but they didn't pick them. The easiest way to say this is the Bible grew through time. Moses writes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Jesus refers to the books of Moses, all right? So you have what, what, what the Jews said and what Jesus said, Moses wrote those. So when Moses died, the Bible was five books big. Read Joshua 1, verse 9. When Joshua's taking over, you need to meditate on this book, all right? You need to, to read what I've written in these five things, all right? So now, Joshua fights the battle of Jericho, and the walls come a-tumbling down. Now, his exploits are written down. Now, the Bible is six books big. And the Bible continued to grow through time. The Bible books were not picked in 90 AD, where people sat around in a library going, well, what do you think we should put in? I like Ecclesiastes. Okay, let's put Ecclesiastes in. That's not the way it worked. The Bible grew through time, all right? Now, I love this passage. You'll, you'll find this if you read your Old Testament people reading the Bible. And it's well before 90 AD. Ballpark figure, Daniel lives around 600 BC, all right? 
Daniel says this, Daniel 9.2. In the first year of his reign, Darius, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Huh? Long story short, Daniel, look at this, he's reading the Bible. Hey, I was reading the scriptures the other day. I was in the Jeremiah scroll. This is Jeremiah 25, if you want to read it. He goes, I saw that the prophecy from God through Jeremiah was we'd only be in Babylon for 70 years. The Bible books were not picked in 90 AD. The Bible grew through time. That's why Daniel's reading the Bible. And that's what Jesus did as well. You know, in Luke 4, he gets the Isaiah scroll out. He goes, that prophecy was just fulfilled in your presence. Bible grew through time. Because God had a message. These people wrote that down, saved it. And the Bible grew through time. All right? Jesus read the Old Testament like we do. Now, it's just a couple of variations, right? He had a different order in his day and age with those 39 Old Testament books, right? We start with Genesis and end with Malachi. Okay, there's about three of you awake. Okay. Oh, man. That normally kills on the road, okay? We start with Genesis, go to Malachi, all right? Back in Jesus' day, they started with Genesis, ended with 2 Chronicles, all right? Same book, same 39 books, just in a different order. We put them in five divisions. So we've got the books of the law, we've got historical books, we've got uh, poetic books, we've got major prophets, minor prophets, right? They had the same 39 books, they just put them into three categories, the law, the Psalms, and the prophets, right? Jesus said the law cannot be broken, God's word can't be broken, and it's true, as I mentioned before, right? Did a Bible study once where this church wanted Leviticus for their Bible study, and we were, we were reading all these, these animal sacrifice sections, and finally, there's one woman who said, is this really God's word? Take an animal, kill it, drain the blood. I'm like, yeah, that's God's word, and I had to point out, you know what Jesus read? is the same thing we do. I'm glad we don't take an animal and bring it to church and kill it, drain the blood, but that's why Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice and the final sacrifice, and his blood covers our sins. And this book tells you about that. And he used it, and he said, I want you to know the truth. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Have you ever heard of the Apocrypha? Yeah, some of you might have heard of the Apocrypha. So you can get a book, a Bible, that has Old Testament, New Testament with Apocrypha in it. For example, the Jerusalem Bible has the Apocrypha. Oxford Study Bible has the Apocrypha in it, all right? What are these? These are books that were added in 1546 by the Roman Catholic Church, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, Tobit, Judith, all right? So these are not canonical books. They're added in 1546 by the Roman Catholic Church. What are the big objections? Why did the church not embrace these. They knew they were out there. They just said, we don't think that's, that's God's inspired and errant word. They weren't written in the original languages, Hebrew and Aramaic, like Old Testament books, Greek in the New Testament. And the biggest thing is they spoke about things that were contrary to the 66 books. So if God was really speaking through First and Second Maccabees and Tobit and Bell and the Dragon, right, why is God changing his tune in those books as opposed to what he's saying here? Like in one of the books, it gives you the impression that giving money will save your soul. Now you can understand, after the Reformation, why the Roman Catholic Church would want to say, hey, hey, check this out. 
Giving money really is important, like indulgences, all right? So you can understand their agenda, but the church never subscribed to that. Plus, there's historical geographical problems, okay? Philo is a Jewish philosopher, Josephus, Jewish historian, I mentioned it before, and Jesus himself never quoted apocryphal books. Did they know they existed? Sure. Did they look at them as authoritative from God? No. The New Testament writers, Paul, John, Peter, never quote from them. Early church did not recognize them as canonical. So they're out there. It's not like your eyes are going to burn in their sockets if you read them, all right? You're just going to read them. Okay, there you go. It's a book. It's interesting. It can tell you some history, but that's pretty much it, all right? Our New Testament, like the Old Testament, was inspired, so people wrote it. Most of them were apostles or people who knew the apostles. So we talk about apostolicity, the authority of the writer. And just so you know, after Revelation's done, ballpark figure about 100 AD, for about 250 years, there was a division over some of the books. Now, we're ending up with two, gro- two great vocabulary words, and you've got to work this into conversation this week. These will just roll off your tongue. You'll easily be able to work them into conversation. Homologumina and antilogumina. Let's try that together. Homologumina. Homologumina. Try it again. Homologumina. All right, now let's try antilogumina. 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 See, isn't that... This is, I'll give you a hint how you can work that into conversation. You know, I was reading a little homologomena the other day. <laughs> you do and you clean it up. Get your homologomena out of here. So what does that mean? Homo same, logos word. The same word was said about all these books. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Book of Acts. All of Paul's letters. First Peter, First John. Nobody had any questions. Early church, they're all going, Yeah. But just so you know, there were seven books that were anti-legumina, huh? anti-against, logos word. They spoke against these books. And really what they were saying was, boy, we don't know who wrote it. N- Hebrews, the author isn't named. James is Jesus' half-brother. He's a leader in the church. Read the book of Acts, but he's not an apostle. Second Peter, gosh, not the same as First Peter in its Greek. But when you read First Peter 5, 12, you find out Peter wrote... First Peter with Silas's help. That's why the writing is different. Second and third John is from the elder. Who's that? Well, it's John, the only apostle who continued to live. He didn't die a martyr's death. Jude, again, the half-brother of Jesus, not one of the original apostles, but later came to faith. And then Revelations from John. Was it John the apostle? Most Christians, the early church, thought so. But some were going, oh, I don't know. And so there wasn't any doctrinal problems. It wasn't like, boy, the content is bad. It was just, who is the writer? And so for, for about 250 years, they kind of held those seven books kind of at arm's length. They're like, well. And then after a while, the church is saying, look, there's nothing in here that's wrong. And that's your canon, your, your books that are from God. Life Three Questions, God's Big Answers is the book. If you want to read it, there's a Spanish version. You can read that. I can't read a lick of it. <laughs> I can read my name, and that's it. And after that, I'm like, oh, it's Greek. Oh, I'm sorry, it's Spanish. Uh, there's other resources if you want, all right? The other book I wrote was called uh, uh, Starting at the End. It's about end times. Everybody wants to know about end times, all right? also talks about what other world you say about the future. And if you don't like to read, you can watch made a, a, a DVD called Big Questions, Biblical Answers. These are 10 questions with answers in 10 to 12 minutes. So it's like short attention span theater, all right? 
My third book's coming out late spring, early summer. Very exciting. Empowered to Lead, Leadership Lessons from Josiah, the Kid King. We'll talk about that another time, all right? We're going to send the youth off into small group. The adults, you can stay 